Let's take our Bibles, Luke 3, and we'll stand together and read some. We're going to read the first 14 verses, even though I'm not going to preach all 14 today. The Bible says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Etruria, Traconitus, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds, and this is where we're going to begin uh, looking today. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham even now. The, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every, ch- um, I don't know what's going on. Is somebody else moving the slides? <laughs> okay, it's, the slides are going crazy. Can you get me to uh, verse number nine, please? So I'm there. Okay, good. So even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do then? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what we, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Lord, I thank you for this word of God. Uh, This is a tough passage to preach and to consider. I pray that we'll be uh, wiser and love Christ more and more assured of our salvation because of the words that we read today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much. Luke 3 has, has moved forward, and I said this last week from the birth narrative, about 30 years, and so Luke introduces John the Baptist. John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He, he was a preparatory figure. He was preparing people for the Lord Jesus Christ, and so John's preaching of repentance was designed to soften hearts and, and to get them to see their sin. And, and then he went on to tell them to believe on the one who was coming after him, whose name is Jesus Christ. Now, since the exile, if, if you remember, there's two periods of religious history in the Old Testament with uh, the children of Israel, pre-exile and post-exile. 
pre-exile, the time before they went to Babylon, they had a real problem with idolatry. They were constantly worshiping the idols of the, the nations around them. After the exile, they had no more problems with idolatry. They, they had a different problem, and it was called legalism. But they were very careful not to worship idols. They were very careful to keep the law because God removed them from Israel because they were worshiping idols and they were not keeping the law. But the religious leaders, in order to be sure that they're, they're doing well, they began to add to the law and they, they created heavy burdens on the people. Additionally, they assumed that as long as they kept the sacrifices and practiced the different forms, they were okay. Kind of reminds me of the, the, I was talking to somebody recently and in, um, in, in Pound and Coleman, Wisconsin, where I came from, a lot of the people, they would make sure that they go to Saturday night mass and immediately after mass, they were going to the bar and to the parties. And uh, they were okay then because they had they, done the form that I was talking about. Jesus' preaching and teaching clearly demonstrated that, that repentance is at the core of saving faith. And his message is the same as John the Baptist. Jesus and John the Baptist both characterize repentance as a, a recognition of one's utter sinfulness and turning from self and sin and turning to God as a result of God's work in the human heart. Now, the word used here is the word repent. He, he preached repentance. And at its very core, the word repent means to change your mind. But that's, that's not all it means. That's the etymology of the word, to, to change mind. Repentance, though, is more than just a mere change of mind. It, it involves a complete change of heart and attitude and interest and direction. Genuine faith always provokes some degree of obedience and that's so important for us to understand scripture even equates faith with obedience did you know that for example in uh john three thirty six, uh there we go i don't know there is a massive delay from when i click to when that slide actually changes i don't know what's going on but uh i think there's a demon in our system somewhere Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Did you catch that? Obedience to the, the commands of Christ, the teaching of Christ, is equated with eternal life. He says, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Another passage of Scripture, Romans 1 and verse number 5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And so Paul here is saying that their apostleship is to bring about obedience, which is equated with the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. One more, Paul again is, is, is speaking, and he says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so, with saving faith comes obedience to the commands of God. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. They're, they're like peanut butter and jelly, right? 
and, and they, they, they go together. And so John's preaching uh, sets the stage for when Christ came. And in this section, we're going to learn what the nature of true repentance is. What is true repentance? How do you know that you're repentant? Well, let's look at verse number 7, and we see that repentance cannot be accomplished through ritual. In verse number 7, Luke tells, uh, tells us that the crowds came out to be baptized by him, and it says that all Jerusalem and all Judea were going to the Jordan to him. Two verses later, in, in Matthew, um, Matthew records in Matthew 3, 7, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to him for baptism. Now, the people coming to be baptized knew that God's wrath was coming. Remember, 400 years previous, God's wrath had come, and they had been removed from the land. In, in that time, they learned from the prophets, once again, that God's wrath is coming. Here's what they learned. If you, if you want to know what they knew, they knew that with the coming of the Messiah, there was salvation for some and there was wrath for others. It's all through the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament prophets made it clear that when the Messiah was coming, he was going to judge. I want to show you in just one passage. We, it's all over the New Testament. Turn to Malachi chapter number 3 with me. Turn to Malachi 3. Now we, we read the part of this last week. This is concerning the messenger that was to prepare the way for the Messiah. In chapter 3, in verse number 1, he says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now this messenger, we learned last week, is John the Baptist. I'm sending John the Baptist. Now notice what happens next. I'm sending the messenger. What is the next thing that happens? And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Now, did Jesus do that? Do you remember what his very first act was when he went into the temple? He cleansed the temple. That was his very first act. He suddenly showed up, turned, we learned last week, the tables of Annas. Remember that? That's what he did. He came suddenly to his temple. And this, this is what else he says. He says, um, suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts but notice what comes next but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap now what is this that's judgment that's judgment verse number th three he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And here's the result of this refining. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So let me, I'm going to read one more verse, but let me say, uh, set the stage here. When Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, what Malachi says is he's coming with fire, so to speak. And the fire is going to do two things. One group who are not in Christ, who are not part of the covenant community, they will be judged by that fire. 
those who are part of the covenant community who are in Christ, they're going to be refined by that fire. And then look at one last verse, verse number five, and it says this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers and swear, those who fear, uh, swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And so here's the stage is set. Now turn back to Luke chapter number three. The stage is set. The people who were coming to John the Baptist knew that he was this messenger. They knew it. And they were humbling themselves and they were submitting to proselyte baptism. We said that last week. Remember the baptism that John is giving these Jews is for non-Jews. They're basically admitting that they're outside the covenant and they, and they have a type of repentance. However, when Jesus came, it's clear that their repentance was shallow and false. The vast majority of the people who came to John the Baptist, their repentance was shallow and false. It was remorse, maybe. It was feeling bad about their sin, maybe. But it was not repentance. And John understands this. And so he calls them out under shallow repentance. Look what he calls them. Have you called your kids this recently? You brood of vipers. Well, I hope you didn't because, that, well, anyway, we won't go there. He's literally calling them offspring of the snake. John is looking at them and saying, you are offspring of the snake. Talking about Satan. He doesn't use the term the snake here, but he's, he's lumping them together with all the other offspring who happen to be offspring of Satan. Remember, this, it was a serpent that came to Eve, wasn't it? It was a serpent. The son, they are sons of the devil. In John 8, 44, Jesus tells the Jews that they are of their father, the devil, the serpent. And so these people are coming to John because they know that wrath is coming and they're trying to flee the wrath. But they're trying to flee the wrath in superficial ways. Do you ever see people who, who try to do things superficially? They know they have a problem. They need to get the problem fixed. And so they do a, a superficial fix, whatever it happens to be. I, I see that a lot in marriage. I, I do marriage counseling sometimes, and when I do it, you can tell if somebody's serious or not, right? You have, you have this, the, the one spouse who's just doing everything superficial, but there, there's no internal heart change. And that's, that's what's going on here. John understands that they're superficial. And so look at verse number 8. What does he tell them? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's telling them that baptism is not enough. Baptism is not going to save them from the wrath of God. There's no right 
There, there's no ceremony, there's no ritual, there's no baptism that can save anyone. Baptism does not save. Rituals do not save. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, and if you could, if you could view the Sermon on the Mount through Jewish eyes, do you know what you will see in Jesus' very first public sermon? Jesus attacks all their religious rituals. All of them. Jesus attacks in that very first sermon. Right from the start in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he hits their ritualism. Because no ritual were ever saved. And I just want to say this. Churches are full of people going through the motions. Going through rituals. People who were baptized as babies. Baptized as young people. Baptized as adults. People who go to the church and they go through whatever ordinance or whatever sacraments their churches call for them to go through. Uh, they, in other churches, they sign a card. They pray the sinner's prayer. They make a decision for Christ. And none of these things save you. Praying a sinner's prayer does not save you. Signing a card does not save you. I signed a card when I was five years old. Junior church, I didn't want to go to hell. I went to the guy and said, I don't want to go to hell. He said, great, sign this card. Then he went to my parents and said, hey, Jared's saved. Seriously. That was a Baptist church, by the way. I'm, okay, i got to move on. That was one of a string of Baptist churches. By the way, in case you're new here, I pastored a Baptist church before I came here. Okay, so let's get that out there. None of these things save you. Now let me finish the sinner's, the, the sinner's prayer thing. None of these things save you unless they're accompanied by repentance. You see, faith and repentance are interchangeable almost. They're, 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 they're together. You can't have one without the other, faith and repentance. And so it, it stands the reason that little Johnny who prayed the sinner's prayer in junior church, but as an adult has nothing to do with the things of God and does not come to church, he was never saved. He was never saved. That's what Scripture is clear about. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now let me give you something else John said. Number two, verses 8 and 9. True repentance involves more than family descent or religious heritage. Look at the second half of verse number 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. When I was a youth pastor in, in Memphis, every Tuesday night we went on, we called it visitation or sometimes we call it uh, soul winning, whatever. And a lot of times what we would do is we would give these religious surveys. We, I had these little clipboards, and the teens, they would go door to door, and they would take religious surveys. And the idea was uh, twofold. Number one, if they get a chance, they can give the gospel. But what it helped these teenagers do is to get 
uh, used to sharing the gospel with, with people. And so many times, now Memphis is like in the buckle region of the Bible Belt. Uh, there's so many churches in Memphis. There were, at one point, there were over 500 Baptist churches in Memphis. Baptist churches everywhere, right? And in all kinds of charismatic churches and everything. And invariably, every Tuesday night, somebody would go to a door and give a survey. And the guy, when they were asking about salvation, the guy would say, well, my dad was a deacon at the Baptist church. Or my mom was a Sunday school teacher at the church. And that is what they were using to, to tell this person, I'm going to heaven because my daddy was a deacon. I'm going to heaven because mom was a Sunday school teacher. And that cannot be further from the truth. And that is what Jesus is saying here. Because the Jew, or uh, John the Baptist, because these Jews, their understanding was, if I am a Jew, I am part of the covenant community. And I'm going to heaven. And, and John the Baptist is saying, you cannot rest in your religious heritage. John says unequivocally that salvation is a result of God's power in God's work. Look at what he says. God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's, he's using hyperbole to tell him that salvation is a work of God. John tells him that even though you're descended from Abraham, you are not true Israel. Now I want to go back to John 8 for just a minute. We, uh, you can turn there if you want. It's verses 39 to 44. I'm not going to really quote, but more refer to them. Jesus is having an exchange with the Jews. And in John 8, 39, they look at him, they look at Jesus, and they say, we are, or he said, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus looks at them and basically says, no, you are not Abraham's children. You are not Abraham's children. And here's why. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. What is he saying? He's saying faith and works go together. True children of Abraham, true descendants in the covenant community, are those who do have the fruit of salvation. Then, of course, verse number 44, I already referred to, he said, they, he tells them that their father's the devil. In other words, not all Israel is true Israel. And that, that brings up a question, who are the true descendants of Israel? Who are the true descendants of Abraham? And the answer is that true children of Abraham are those who follow the faith of Abraham. True children of Abraham are those who follow the faith of Abraham. So that is why we, have, we find it in Romans 2, in Romans 4, Romans 9, Galatians chapter 3, and other places in, in the New Testament, the Bible teaches us that true descendants of Abraham are those who have his faith. For example, in Galatians, written to Gentiles, Paul said, and if you are Christ's, then what? You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So somebody who is, a, is an Israelite or a descendant of Abraham 
is one who is an heir of the promise. In other words, you have the saving faith that Abraham had. I'll give you another verse in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. This is one that we, we just gloss right over. Now remember, the Corinthians are Gentiles, aren't they? They're not, they're not Jews. And so Paul wrote, writes to them and says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What did he just do with these Gentiles? He told them that the, the children of Israel who were in the cloud during the Exodus went through the, the Red Sea during the Exodus. That's their, those are their spiritual fathers. And so a, a, the offspring of Abraham are those who have Abraham's faith. If you don't have Abraham's faith, you are not Abraham's offspring, no matter what your ethnicity is. So then, turn back to Luke chapter 3 if you're not there. Verse number 9, John proclaims the first hint of national destruction and personal destruction by warning of the, the, the closeness of, of the approaching judgment. He says this, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, for every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The axe is ready to fall, and where is the axe aimed? At the root. And who is the root? The root is national Israel. The root is national Israel, and the tree is about to be destroyed. I, I don't have the time, I would extend my preaching on this passage by another sermon or two, to go back into the Old Testament and show this figurative, um, this figure of speech used to show that the nation of Israel is going to get wiped out because God's axe is already laid at the base of the tree. And he's going to destroy the nation. Now, Jesus told a parable about Israel. In Luke chapter 13, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 13, he told a parable about Israel that says the exact same thing, the parable of the fig tree. Verse 13, Jesus said this, A man had a, <coughs> a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Does that remind you of something similar of Isaiah 5? Where, Jesus, or where Isaiah says that, that uh, the Lord planted a vineyard? And that's talking about national Israel. Uh, he had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came out seeking fruit and found none. And so he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find one. Now, what does three years refer to? Jesus is speaking here three years of public ministry to Israel, to all the Jews in Galilee, in Judea, right? Cut it down, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And if, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Now here's the question. By and large, did Israel bear fruit? Everybody's afraid to answer that one. They didn't. How many people were in the upper room? 120. Jesus, for three years, preached to thousands 
upon thousands upon thousands of people. And by and large, they rejected him. And ultimately, we know that. And the Acts did fall. From 66 to 70 A.D., it's estimated that the Romans killed 1.1 million Jewish people in, in, in Galilee and in Judea. 1.1 million and effectively removed Israel as a nation for centuries. Israel never became a nation again until 1948. And so there's that national judgment. But I want you to notice in Luke chapter number 3 something else about that Acts. That Acts makes distinctions, and this is where it's important for Jewish individuals and us as Gentiles. Notice what he says. Every tree that does not bear fruit or bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is the picture the Lord is walking through his vineyard or his orchard, whichever one you want to pick. It doesn't matter. He's walking through the orchard, and when he finds a tree that is unfruitful, he walks and he cuts it down. And it's thrown into the fire. And what's the fire symbolic of? Hell. Eternal judgment. And it's burned. And they were, these... Jews were physical descendants of Abraham, but the ones who bore no fruit of repentance, they were cast into eternal judgment. The ones who bore fruit had, were, were sent into eternal bliss. Now, I, I, I want to answer another question. That is, do we see this anywhere else in the Gospels? And we do. Turn to John chapter 15 with me. I want to show you a couple things about John 15. Very familiar I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. If you're a King James person, uh, that's I'm the vine and my father is the what? Husbandman, right? All right, verse number one. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. There it is. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to him. Now, now he's speaking to the disciples in the upper room. This is part of the upper room discourse. So he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. He gave them assurance that they're bearing fruit. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears how much fruit? Much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And here it is again. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered <coughs> and thrown into the fire and burned. Here again is another vineyard uh, illustration. This one is by Jesus Christ. And let me see if I can help you out. In the Old Testament, God's vineyard was Israel. In the New Testament, His vineyard is the professing church. Right? The professing church. This is everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Savior. People who go to church or are church members. 
Jesus already made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that not everybody who confesses uh, Jesus as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. And here it is in John 15. Vines that have life. By the way, the life symbolic of, of spiritual fruit, right? You confess Christ, you have the accompanying fruit, you will bear more fruit, you will enter heaven. But the vines that have no life, symbolic of, ha- of people having no spiritual life, they bear more, no fruit and will be cast into eternal punishment. That's the teaching of Jesus on, on um, fruit bearing. Now, we're finally to a question that I want to answer and that we're, we all should be asking, and that is, what is that fruit? What does the fruit of repentance look like? Verse number 10 the crowds were asking the same question, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And John's answer is, I can sum it up in one word, repent. Repent. But he shows repentance, his message of repentance, by the fruit of repentance. Let's look at that fruit very quickly. Verse number 11, true repentance involves a changed life. True repentance in, involves a changed life john answers different groups of people and so if you're truly repentant your life is going to be different it's going to be different number one because you're going to love your neighbors yourself and he answered them and said whoever has two tunics share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise what's a tunic anybody wear a tunic today to church a tunic is a type of of long undershirt, <coughs> long or short, depending on how you view it. it. It comes down just below your waist. It, it's an undershirt, and it's worn underneath the outer garment. And to show a transformed heart, believers are to love their neighbors in unselfish ways. And they would show their love for God by how they love their neighbors. And they would show a transformed heart by being unselfish and generous with their neighbors, both in clothing and in food. And so basically, if I could sum it up, do you know what um, repentance is? Repentance is sharing the basic necessities with our brothers and sisters in Christ when we have the ability to do so. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's totally at odds with the world today, isn't it? You know, if you have somebody who has all kinds of money in, in the world who's not a believer, what is their attitude in general? Their attitude is, I earn this. Right? I can spend it however I want. You look at, they, they always publish the, the, the charitable giving of politicians. You ever see it? Let me ask you, are they generous? No, they're the most ungenerous people you've ever seen. Because that's the world today. The Christian is completely opposite of that. We know that everything comes from God. We know that He can give us more and more and more. And so we share and we share in abundance. And it's interesting if you look uh, in, in demographics, Christians are by and large the most charitable people in, in our country. It, it's a fascinating demographic. Number two. Another fruit of repentance, don't be a lover of money. The next group that comes along are tax collectors. Now, you need to know the background. 
to understand this. Taxes in the Roman Empire are just like taxes in the United States. They're very complex, okay? There were several kinds of taxes. And in most regions, the collecting of taxes was farmed out by wealthy Romans. They were called publicans. The Romans were called publicans. They would, in, in turn, hire other people to do the actual collecting of the taxes. And the people that Luke is referring to here are these underlings who are collecting taxes. And they're collecting taxes on things that are um, leased or purchased. Sounds like sales tax to me, doesn't it to you? That's what they were collecting. And these people were Jews. He's talking to Jewish tax collectors. And the, the Jewish tax collectors, these underlings, they, they were told, you collect X amount of dollars for Rome, but you can also collect a surcharge to help with your expenses, to recoup some of your expenses. But instead of adding a surcharge to recoup expenses, they fleeced their countrymen. And so therefore, they were hated. And because they were working for the Roman government, they were perpetually unclean. And so John's response to these people was to collect more and more than the law allows. Matter of fact, Zacchaeus is a prime example, isn't he? What did Zacchaeus do? We know the story. You guys want to sing the song together real quick? Uh, let's not, okay? We're being recorded. I don't want that on going out on the internet. But uh, Zacchaeus, when Jesus came to his house, you remember what he said? He said, I will give back what? Fourfold. I think it was fourfold what I collected. That's a repentant heart. That's somebody who's saying, I, I understand. I I'm not going to be holding to money. There these tax collectors, though, what John didn't tell them, notice, he doesn't tell them, give up your profession. He doesn't tell them that at all. Rather, conduct yourself honorably and favorably. Let me give you another one. I think I reworded on the slide. Let me see. Yeah, don't take advantage of others. In my sermon notes, I have don't shake people down. Okay? The next group that comes, they're Jewish police officers or Jewish soldiers. They're not Roman soldiers. These are Jews. These are Jewish soldiers or police officers who assisted and protected. And you know who they protected? The tax collectors. Really. That's, that's, what, that's who these people are. And, and um, so they, they came and they said, what shall we do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone. By threats or false accusations, be content with your wages. The word extort, you know what that word is? To shake violently. In other words, don't be shaking people down. That's what we would say today, isn't it? Don't shake people down. Uh, Chris Colt, he's a, um, he's a missionary to Poland. And uh, if Ben Lair is kind of in the, um, the center of Poland, Chris is in the, the southern and western region of Poland, and when he, when he moved from Canada back to Poland, he's originally a Polish person, he had a, a container that sat in customs for three weeks. For three weeks, he sat in the customs office. You know why? Because they wanted to extort money out of him. 
and he refused to give him any money. He said, this is immoral, I'm not giving you money. And the guy finally realized, I'm not going to get any money from this guy and release his stuff. Don't shake people down. The police are not to use strong-arm tactics to gain financial advantage. But he also says, extort uh, money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Don't falsely accuse someone. You're not to gain money through fraud. And finally, he says, be content with your wages. A positive affirmation to the soldiers, be content with your wages. These, these are characteristics of somebody who's truly repented. Now, what's interesting Two points I want to say about this list. Number one, almost all of these point to loving your neighbor, aren't they? If we love God, we're going to love our neighbor. But secondly, notice that all these examples have something to do with money. What did Jesus say? You can't serve God and mammon, money. You can't serve them both. It's, it's an either or right? Money has great spiritual power, both for evil and for good. What we do with our wealth reveals our true priorities. What we do with our wealth reveals our true priorities. Are we living for ourselves? Or are we living for Jesus Christ and for others? Do you know what is a good indicator of your spiritual health? Your budget and your bank account. That tells you more about your spiritual health than the fact that you're here Sunday morning, what you do with your money. But it doesn't stop there, does it? These examples teach us that in every situation in life, it has its own temptations. For example, all of us have different dominating forms of depravity office workers tempted to grumble about the boss now i know nobody here would do that because your bosses are perfect right <laughs> laborers are tempted to cut corners contractors don't you hate it when a contractor cuts a corner businessmen are tempted to be greedy Supply and demand. Capitalism is, is beholden to greed, really, if you think about it. Scholars and musicians tempted to be arrogant over their gifts and abilities. Teachers tempted to be impatient. School's out, so you don't have to worry about that now. Children tempted to rebel against their parents. Men tempted to use pornography or angrily use their authority in their home people who have been wronged tempted to become bitter people who suffer are tempted to self-pity and these are these are only examples there's much more and the point is this if you have true faith that true faith is accompanied by genuine repentance and that is how you know that when Jesus comes the second time, and we're waiting for his second coming, aren't we? When he comes again, we'll be on our way to heaven, and we won't be thrown into eternal fire. Let me ask you, what are you living for? Do you show genuine fruit 
of repentance. Lord, I thank you for uh, the teaching of John the Baptist. To be quite honest, Lord, this was hard teaching today. John the Baptist's message was, was a, a hard message, a tough message. It was preparatory. But Lord, um, obviously from Scripture, we learn that hard preaching results in soft hearts. And it softened the hearts of the hearers of John the Baptist. And so, Lord, I pray that the message that John preached will soften our hearts. Because all of us, all of us, Lord, because we have a, a sin nature in us, have a temptation towards some form of depravity and i pray that we will look at our lives that we will honestly assess through the the power of the holy spirit the the um the illuminating influence of the holy spirit that we will honestly assess lord do we have fruits of repentance or do we not bear fruit at all and i pray lord that either we'll be confirmed in our salvation, or today will be our day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.